0: Welcome to No Ad, No Problem, a podcast devoted to college tennis and growing the game. Check us out on Twitter at JTweetsTennis and Instagram at No Ad, No Problem. I'm your host, John. Let's serve it up. Hey, everyone. Every June, the NCAA Division I Men's and Women's Tennis Committee meets to look back at the previous season's championships and prepare for the season ahead. This year, the committee is focused on preparing for the inaugural NCAA Fall Individual Championships in 2024. Joining me back on the show after his summer vacation to break down the 11-page committee report to bring you what you really need to know is Ethan Moskowski. Ethan, I figured if we're breaking down anything that has the words legislation, procedures, or bylaws in it then there's no better person to bring on than our in-house legal counsel here at No Ad No Problem. So welcome back to the show. Thank you, I like that. I like the in-house legal counsel. We're gonna, I think we're, we'll we'll run with that. No, I'm I'm glad to be back. It's been a long summer, but there's never a bad time to talk about college tennis. Well, and certainly the time has started where we are getting ready to think about this upcoming season. We'll have actual college tennis in just a few weeks. But before we do that, felt it was a good time to recap what the committee is focused on. And so just a little bit more context on this committee and who's on it. It's a mix of coaches and administrators. So you have coaches like uh, Chris Young of Oklahoma State, who's the director of tennis there. Jimmy Borendame of Middle Tennessee. Then you also have administrators. Both the men's and women's chairs of these committees are administrators. Kathy Rossi is a deputy, deputy AD at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She chairs the women's committee. And you have Mike Penner, who's the associate AD at Ohio State, who chairs the men's committee. And then often in these annual meetings, you will have guests. So those include people from the ITA, in this case, the USTA, since they were the host of the 2023 championships. And then you also have NCAA staff from the championships and alliances committee. All right. So today's conversation, will really parse through and read between the lines of this 11-page report to bring you some of the impactful information you need to know for the upcoming season. So today's conversation, we're going to structure this by talking about really the biggest item in this report, which is all around the 2024 fall individual championships, who's hosting, how you will qualify. We will also discuss what the committee discussed as a look back on the 2023 spring championships and then we will discuss a few other items in this report that caught our eye that uh, are good things to know so ethan 2024 fall championships we now know officially where it will be will be hosted by baylor november 19th through the 24th which is the lead up weekend right before thanksgiving What was your initial response when you saw that Baylor would be the host?
1: Well, I think Baylor makes a lot of sense. I mean, first and foremost, we were expecting to have NCAAs, we're going to have NCAAs at Baylor um, for the following spring, which was originally supposed to have an individual tournament attached to it. So it made sense to give Baylor the individual tournament that it originally bargained for, even if it's at a different date. Um, additionally, you know, Baylor's facilities have always been thought of as being on the higher end of, of college sports. We haven't been to Texas in, in a relatively long time. Baylor hosted the 2015 NCAA singles and doubles, as well as the team event, um, you know, and, and the herd tennis facility indoors, outdoors, courts, bleachers, the whole thing. It's a, you know, it's a really, really high end facility as far as our sports concerned. So if you're going to do something like this on a college campus, it's a, it's a pretty logical choice. I'm not super familiar with what the weather is going to be like in Waco in late November. Uh, I'm sure it has the potential for being a little bit on the chilly side. Um, but they have, they have legitimate indoor facilities that we'll be able to turn to if necessary. But obviously
0: the ideal situation would be to have the bulk of the event, at least outside. Well, Ethan, I'm glad you brought up the weather because I pulled some stats for you. Do you know the, high temperatures last year in 2022 between November 19th and November 24th at Baylor well i feel like you wouldn't ask me this if it was something really warm so i'm going to go with like 45 they ranged from 49 to 63 had okay. one day above 60 okay but that's workable right so
1: in is the it rule workable is, the the ita rule is when you're playing dual matches if it's above 50 degrees for 2 of the 3 match hours you play outside so 55 degrees is outside tennis conditions for the vast majority of us for the vast majority of the year so is it is it stunning <laughs> no is it like are we going to be in orlando where we're like reapplying sunscreen every 18 minutes so we don't get burned to a crisp no of course not but uh, you know it's better. If you'd said like the average high was 43, I'd have been very concerned. But, but you know, if it can get into the mid fifties, 55 to 60, especially, you know, that can work. It's okay. It's not yeah. great. It's not great. It's not, yeah. it's, not, great. <laughs> yeah. not it's not California. Sorry. It's not California.
0: Well, so, okay. So you, you covered it, right? I mean, Baylor sort of had the first right of refusal here uh, because they were originally planning to host the 2025 uh, team and individuals. So, you know, if you strip them of that, kind of offer them this chance to host Uh, and just to level set. So in 2024, we will have the team and individuals hosted in the spring by Oklahoma state Then what we were talking about here is in 2024 fall. So later that same year, we will be in Waco having the fall individual championships. We will have two NCAA individual winners next year in 2024. Then the following spring in 2025, Baylor will host again, but it will just be the team event. So book your tickets to go to Waco twice in a six month period. We're all really looking forward to that. And then, yeah, that's what you're not excited about. <laughs> I got it. I got it. And then the following fall in 2025, we will have the 2025 NCAA individual championship. So we'll be back to having one individual winner in that calendar year of 2025. That host is unknown right now. One of the reasons that Baylor is able to host this in 2024 is because they confirmed no football game that weekend seems like that could be an issue for Georgia. Georgia, maybe not super excited about hosting during football season. Maybe that schedule, certainly with conference realignment still up in the air. So what they are doing now for 2025 fall is opening up the bidding to anyone who bid on the 2023 to 2026 cycle. So you can go back and say, Hey, we didn't get chosen for the team or we did get chosen for a team, but we would also like to bid on 2025 fall individual championships.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I'll be curious to see which way the NCA goes with this going forward. Obviously, this is a two two-year pilot program, three-year pilot program two testing, yep. two-year pilot program of testing NCAAs, the individual championships being in the fall. I'll be curious if if this uh schedule sticks, meaning if we continue to have the individual event, I'll be curious to see if they decide to. To split it so that the team and the individuals are in different locations, or if we are going to do what we're doing with Baylor every year and go to the same site twice in six months. When, when we talk about uses for that Orlando facility, there, there are some people who complained about the weather this year. I'm going to take a guess that Orlando in November is actually probably pretty great like Orlando might wind up being a great facility to have this event as a staple event at the end of the you know at the end of the year so to speak in the fall where the weather is going to be pretty ideal and players like going to Florida in November there's not going to be an issue with that a lot of teams will take time to go to Florida or somewhere if they can for a preseason around that time you know December uh into early January before dual matches start so it's very plausible that the USTA decides that they're interested in this event and, and it could wind up being a staple there. I don't think that would be the worst thing in the world. I, like, I think for this event in particular, having stability, having it in the same place every year, the same weekend every year is a good thing. And I don't know if the USTA is going to have the same concerns about you know, challenging football schedules. You know, The no, USTA is a sort of standalone facility, even if it's technically hosted by UCF. So you know, I think Orlando might wind up being a very plausible host for this sort of event moving forward. And and as they reopen the bidding, uh, I would not be surprised to see the USTA hop in there as a, as a destination.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think one thing to keep in mind here is one of the value props that has been discussed in having this fall individual championships is getting it on TV. And one of my concerns with Baylor hosting is this is putting a lot of pressure on Baylor as the host. It's worth keeping in mind that the host of the NCAA championships, bears a lot of responsibility when it comes to securing this to be on TV, funding to get it on TV, funding to have it a special event, all of the uh, accommodations that you may or may not see around the facility pretty much provided by the host. Really, the NCAA will roll out a few banners for you and everything else is on you. And so my concern in this is that I don't know if Baylor is prepared to make this that much of a special event in the fall, get on TV. And also the one thing Orlando did have this year was really good attendance for the finals of the individual championships. It's really hard to imagine a world where you have really strong attendance in Waco for the NCAA individual championships that unless somebody from Baylor's unless someone from Baylor's playing so that is one of my concerns I almost if again it's unfortunate that the USGA isn't a stronger partner in all of this because it would be great to have this at a two-year pilot program where you feel buoyed that we have the infrastructure and and the the support to make this like a really amazing event. Because if we're gauging the success, I am a little worried about having this in Waco the week before Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the USDA would be an ideal solution for this. Doing it in Orlando, you know, I think Georgia is the sort of destination that could work as well. I'm I'm quite fond of of the the whole facility at Georgia, but I also know that you know Athens, Georgia, is not a big place. There's a limited amount of hotels. If it's a football weekend, you can forget about getting a hotel. Yeah, and you it wouldn't be hosted about, during a football you weekend. You can forget about anyone coming. And so it's very hard for Georgia to know several years out whether or not they're going to be able to host something on a specific weekend four years in advance, which is when the bidding for this often happens. And so in, in the case of the USDA, it solves a lot of problems. We already
0: know that the facility is TV ready. And by the way, I mean, this is a- hold, so sorry. Hold on. What well, do you mean the facility is TV ready? That well, because was not here's the case the thing. in 2023. We don't
1: we don't need to have them on the college dual match courts. The matches don't need to be on the dual match courts. There're no dual matches going on. The matches can be on any of the courts there and they have two stadium facilities that have hosted challenger events that when it's not rained.
0: Yeah, I'm they, ha- they have the stadium setup. court, right? Yeah, yeah that, I mean, but let's I mean, let's hold the horses on TV ready. Um. <laughs> it's more TV ready than, than
1: any college tennis facility.
0: So I actually think that's, that is actually not true because there are a lot of college facilities that already have a lot of streaming and broadcast capabilities on campus because of things like football that the USTA has not really invested in. So anyways, all of this to say Baylor is your host in 2025 and gosh, I hope we have the the people, the infrastructure in place to make this feel like a really special event. Let's move on to how players will qualify for this inaugural event the first time that we are bifurcating the team and the individuals. The TLDR here, Ethan, is you Mm -hmm. must qualify through one of four ITA tournaments in the fall. The end. Now much, yeah. <laughs> to I will briefly go through the four events and I want to get your reaction to this. Um okay, so there are four events that are essentially qualifying events into the NCAA uh field. How you perform in these events is what determines whether or not you get into the NCAA field. Think of it similar to how Fall Nationals exist today, where you can qualify by, you know, making the semifinals of uh all-americans, winning a regional, things like that. All right, so the four events that you need to know. Number 1 is All-Americans. This is a, you know, historical, you know, prestigious event in the fall. There will be 10 singles qualifiers, four doubles qualifiers. I believe it'll be the singles quarterfinalists and the backdrop finalists. You then have regionals, which will have 26 qualifiers that is We've added a
1: new region. We've
0: added a new region. We don't know where this region is, but we have 13 regions now. (laughs) New region. We have 13 regions. You then have a Masters tournament, which is replacing fall nationals. Now, this is interesting because this Masters championships includes only one player from each conference. No additional at-large or wildcard spots. So for example, if there are 31 women's automatic qualifying conferences, you'll have 31 players in this event. How that one player per conference is chosen is up to the conference. They could decide to have a conference play an event. They could just go based off of ITA ranking or WTN rating. But this is the new event and only four singles players from this event will qualify. Your last event here is super regionals. You'll have 24 qualifiers from the singles event here. And I I think it's less clear to me on what this is or how this field is determined, but this is really being framed as like a last chance qualifier. So if you do not qualify from one of the previous three events, and those are listed there in chronological order, all Americans, regionals, then this master's tournament, you can play this Super Regionals events. Ethan, floor is yours. Your feedback generally on this qualifying criteria. You ever read a
1: lot of words and your takeaway is, wow, I just read a lot of words and they don't really mean anything, but there's a lot of words there. It, it feels a little bit like that. Like you said, we this is roughly, roughly the qualifying format for fall Nats as we know them today. Players get in from All Americans, player get in, get players get in from regionals. There are some other events. There's the Milwaukee Tennis Classic. Some people get auto-qualified in on ranking, I think. Like, you know, this is a, let's call it, shortened or streamlined version of the qualifying that exists for Fall Nats today. My issue with it is it doesn't make a lot of sense um in the the super regionals in particular make no sense to me at all if if you want to take players from all americans based on results at those events players from regionals based on results of those events and from what we can tell it looks like it's two players per regional which should be a semi or should be the finalist and the winner from each regional which is very much like what we see with fall nats and a couple of players from this new masters event i think that's totally fine what is Super Regionals? Like you said, it it sounds like it's a last chance qualifying event. But to me, it just sounds like all of the best players who've already qualified are just going to take some events off, right? There's no impetus for a player who quarters All-Americans to play any of these other events, like none whatsoever. And you could make the argument now that that's the case as well. Oh, if you send me All-Americans now, you're automatically into fall Nats. Sure, absolutely, but this isn't fall Nats anymore. This is the NCAA title. We've previously crowned the NCAA singles title based on their body of work over the course of the full fall and the full spring, and then the best, what is it, 48 players with some automatic qualifiers get in, right? Now we're talking about potentially, what is it, 36 of 64 players in this draw could play one event have a good week, and they're in. And and to me, that's sort of, um, I don't want to say it's it's illogical, but it seems a little bit like we've dumbed down what it means to win the NCAA singles title in doing this. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but what I, what I am saying is if somebody rocks up to All-Americans, wins three rounds, that's great. That's a very good result. But it's like mission accomplished. Now you take a couple of months off, you do some hard work, you show up for NCAAs. What's, what's the point? Actually, you know, you have these four events that all lead to qualification. There are better ways in my mind. I, I, I could see better ways of organizing a fall schedule where each event matters or where at least a series of events matter and we can create some sort of ranking to track player progress through the fall as opposed to saying, Oh, you know, if you show up at your regional, which the regionals vary in strength and size, right? If you show up to your regional and you, you lose in the final, you're in. Yeah. You know, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's going to carry as much gravitas as it used to.
0: Yeah. So when I originally saw this, I had a few thoughts. The first was we had more than a year really, but let's just say a year since when they sent out the survey to coaches and said, Hey, we're going to start like putting this together. That was August of 2022, right? June of 2023 this is not really reimagined, right? And one of the value props for hosting the NCAAs in the fall was sort of having a really clear structure on what the purpose of the fall was. Now it's clear that, hey, the fall is just individuals, but what's missing here is the exciting aspect of a road to the NCAAs. And instead, you have what appears to be four fairly disjointed Tournaments, right? Like to your point, you could play all america at all. It's not linear, right? Linear
1: at all. It's it's a pick a tournament and try and rock up that day and or that week and have the best week possible. Punch your ticket and then chill until NCAA shows up. Yeah, like, and you can pick your poison, right? If you come from a really soft regional and you're viewing this as I want to qualify for NCAA's, but I want to I want to play the least tennis possible, and you know that you come from a soft regional. Why bother going to Tulsa? Like, unless we're really going to say that being a fall All-American still carries that much prestige, there's really no point in showing up to fall fall All-Americans anymore because you're more likely to qualify through your soft regional than you are to qualify through a really challenging All-American bracket that usually features, you know, the best 30 returning players at least and then some freshmen and some other, you know, qualifiers. So it, it just... I don't get it is the,
0: like, I don't get why this makes more sense. Yeah. So I think that that lack of, you know, linear nature of this is, is confusing. And just to talk for a second, I mean, the, one of the drawbacks of having the fall individual championships, particularly for top programs with top players on the men's side. And you've spoken about this on the show before is a player taking the fall off and playing pro actually helps redistribute and balance out scholarship money for those programs. So now you're in a world where if you have a top player who does want to play NCAAs, but they really only need to play one of these events, they have to be enrolled for the entire fall semester, take up scholarship money that they could otherwise go and play pro tennis. So let's not forget that this whole fall championships requires these players to be enrolled. And we're seeing a lot more players top players in particular, not enroll. So that is going to continue to be a forcing function where now you're going to have players need to decide, Hey, you know, what do I want to do? And, and coaches decide that as well. Coaches say, Hey, I have a top international player. Do I even push them to come for the fall? Because I could use that half a scholarship elsewhere. It becomes really challenging. Well, yeah. And by the way, think about the quality, the quality of some January
1: entrances that we've seen recently who are just going to miss this entirely. Like we, we've seen high quality first years show up in January and yeah, it takes them time. They might not make NTAs anyway, but some of the best players who are now playing pro tennis were January admits to their school, right? Like JJ Wolf was a January arrival at Ohio state. And so it's like, yeah, well, if he sticks around the next year, he'll play it in the fall. But it's like, yeah, but the varnish, the 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 cool aspect of superstar freshman shows up
0: to play NCAAs is is gone. Yeah, it's not there at that point. So well, that, yeah, weird. I mean, so that ship has sailed because this is what we're yeah. moving for in this pilot. I just think it's worth keeping in mind some of the impact of this, but that was my first feedback around just like the non-linear nature of this. I mean, we have examples on professional tennis where you have the tour finals, right? Where it's a race to the year end finals. You could have a race where cumulative points actually contribute to making this. My second point was that this is very region and conference based, which I actually think is the wrong direction to go you've alluded to this around the variability and strength of these regions i looked at an example so on the women's side the carolina region Yeah, i was gonna say it's the carolina region for sure carolina on the region, men's side too on the men's side the carolina regions it's stacked it's ridiculous but just to, to put this into context last year they had two draws in their regional and the winners qualified for fall nats. the semifinalists in those two draws so the eight players here you had chloe beck Emma Jackson, Iana Ackley, Abby Rincelli, Sarah Hamner, Amelia Rajecki, Cassie Wooten, and Cam Mora. Every single player except for one has played the NCAA individual well, event. And by the way, some of the players who you didn't name didn't play that event
1: because they'd already qualified. So Fiona Crawley, uh, Abby Carson Tangillic, Carson Tangelig, all could have been in that draw. But weren't because they already qualified. Yeah. The the Carolina region is a joke. And maybe inside a special. And maybe
0: that's the one they've broken up. We don't know. But juxtapose that to North and South Carolina. Like (laughs) juxtapose that to the mountain region where you had two players who make the final, who end the year ranked 106 and unranked. And so in this model, right, they're getting into the NCAA field when historically they would not. And so I really don't like the emphasis on regions and conferences. And let's talk about this Masters tournament. The Masters tournament where you have one player from each conference. I mean, they have to totally go back to the drawing board on this after conference realignment because you cannot have one player from the SEC. Even before conference realignment, I can tell you that on
1: both sides, I would be nearly shocked if it wasn't on the women's side, ACC versus someone. And on the men's side, the semifinals will be ACC, SEC,
0: you know, Pac-12, Big Ten. Thanks for coming. Well, but, but the thing about this is you create a field that is uh, unequal, right? because everyone has in, there's one representative from each conference. So all of a sudden you're putting a draw together and you just need to make the semis, you're probably gonna get a player or two that is not a top 64 player in the country,
1: well, especially when you consider the fact that by the time to- if if we're right and it goes all Americans, regionals, then masters, then super regionals, like in that order chronologically, it does. The players who are getting pushed to go to masters are not even going to be the best representatives of their school, probably at some of the major conferences, right? Like you would figure that on the ACC women's side, like what we were just talking about, by the time masters rolls around, having already had ITA All Americans, having already had regional championships, UNC, the UNC women have probably qualified like their entire roster. So they're probably not even going to put anybody into masters, even if they might be the best representative for the conference. They're, they're either not going to even try to get somebody through or they're going to try and get their number nine player through who won't play a dual match all year. Like it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, particularly where it is in the order. If, if we said we want to do masters first and have it be basically a a, a meaningful all-star game and say we're going to take the highest-ranked returning player from each conference and put them in a tournament, it has more meaning than it does where it is right now because where it is right now is just like it's a random guesswork choice by the conference to say who hasn't already qualified, wants to qualify, and is good enough that we can take. And oh, by the way, coaches, please... You guys are going to have to argue on behalf of your players
0: for why we should choose them. Yeah, because well, keep in mind that the conference determines how they want to select this player. So yeah. the conference would determine maybe they need a play in tournament for the Masters. Maybe they just go with the highest ranked player, the highest WTN rated player. You have no idea. So, yeah. My last point on this, and again, we don't really know the super regionals, but like the whole branding of all of these events is it's stupid. Can, I was going to use confusing, but stupid is fine too. Because again, let's make a very clear, understandable pathway to the NCAAs. Having the All-American versus regionals versus masters versus super regionals feels disjointed. It feels unconnected. So um, they have a September touchpoint for their next review. And I think they have a lot of work to do. And I will say this, I really wish they had implemented this for this fall because it really concerns me that we're going to be doing this play in criteria for ncaa's next fall for the first time when there's real stakes on the line right if you wanted to stand up this master's tournament and figure out like how it would work and all of that
1: do it it. put it on the schedule yeah
0: and like it's fine to have a pilot program right where we're testing out the fall championships don't make play in events a pilot because you're going to have a pilot NCAA field and that's not what we want so that's my last point on how you get in but we'll keep everyone posted I think there's going to be more to come here uh, particularly as these continue to be socialized uh with more coaches and more feedback is given so that is the 2024 Championships we have a few other notes that we'll get to that we are excited for on the team side at the end but let's chat about the 2023 championship review that this committee had again we played the 2023 team and individuals in lake nona ethan i'll hand it over to you your reaction to this part of the report was fill in the blank
1: whatever man like it it, it was like it's a massive i mean first of all look, it is a review. So mostly they're just, you know, reviewing what they've done and basically saying like whether or not we liked or didn't like it. And unsurprisingly, the NCA likes its handiwork most of the time. So there's not much in here that's going to be like, wow, what a, what a absolutely world busting discovery the NCA made through this. But look, I- I thought the NCAA tournament this year was was actually a bit wacky in ways that we haven't seen before and I think a lot of that was pretty much outside of the NCAA's control. Like we talk about you know weird weather concerns and rain and and yes, on the one hand you go the NCAA made a mistake and didn't have a contingency plan for weather in Orlando when it rains in Orlando in the late spring. We all know that. Um and that's on them. On the other hand, you you sit there and you're like even if they had a really great plan they were stuck in Orlando where there's six indoor courts with no fan viewing and no streaming so it was a lose lose situation at that point like they, they were sort of stuck they were they were where they were I would say I thought I noted somewhere in terms of match times and order that yes. they're going to abandon the 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 concurrent match
0: play and switch back to one after the next after the next after the next spoiler alert ethan i was going to end the show with this because it was the thing that made me happiest uh in reading this whole thing yes that was discussed when they were kind of previewing the 2024 team action plan which is they're going to prioritize sequential matches because of the inclement weather this past year having matches uh scheduled at the same time becomes a a cluster and so this is awesome news is awesome news for fans to have sequential matches that they can go to is awesome news for the broadcast i'm so excited about this hands down the thing i was most excited about i you know i saw
1: that and well here's the thing also because let's be a little bit clear here with with the sequential matches what happened in Orlando was unavoidable in terms of the rain, regardless of whether or not it was sequential or concurrent matches. Because at the time that the rain happened, it was you were, again, too far gone. The, the 5 p.m. matches were getting pushed to the next day, which means the 8 p.m. matches weren't playing. And that could happen if it was sequential anyway, right? Like, if you had a, a 10, a 2, a 5, and an 8, you could still have that happen, but it's less matches right? Because they chose to start two matches at five, two matches at eight. Everybody got pushed as opposed to two matches happen, two matches get pushed the next day. So it was going to be a bit of a mess. Anyway, the problem in Orlando wound with the weather wound up being the indoor facility wasn't sufficiently usable, basically, to have indoor matches there. And that can't happen. And the scheduling won't fix that. For For the purposes of getting stuff televised or getting stuff streamed uh, and getting content that's easily viewable for fans in front of fans, sequential matches are without a doubt so much better than the concurrent matches. It's going to be a much more easily viewable experience for fans on site and at home because... When you have concurrent matches and you only have one person streaming, you're basically just
0: crossing your fingers and hoping that that's your team. So this is much better. Yeah. Well, the thing about the schedule is had they scheduled sequentially and done like a 10, 1, 4, and 7, they probably would have one half of the draw done in that disaster day on the men's side. So that's where it would have changed things. All right. On the 2023 you mentioned they like review a lot of things. And basically the way that this looks in the report is like every bullet is some sort of category, whether that is weather, hotels, merchandise sales, broadcast and web stream. And it's just a sub bullet that said like, we reviewed the fact that there was inclement weather. We reviewed feedback on the hotels. We reviewed feedback on the broadcast and web stream. My biggest gripe with this whole report is they get very granular in 2023 championship review about things like, referee pay. For example, I can tell you referees, head referees are getting a $5 per day increase from 2023 to 2024 in preliminary rounds. Things I cannot tell you in reading this report is how many people attended the NCAA championships, how many people watched the broadcast and web stream? How did that compare to 2022 with the Tennis One app? How did it compare to 2021? Wait, I got this. There's a there's a legal term for this. It's called willful blindness. If you don't ask,
1: <laughs> if you don't ask for those numbers to be reported, you won't get those numbers. And uh, you know we've spoken about this with Super Regionals a lot of like. Some schools don't even keep track. Like some schools don't don't care. Like they they just they have these events. There's nobody keeping track. No of what
0: attendance? Yeah, of attendance. Oh, but I'm just talking Orlando. Like even there, who's keeping track of attendance? That's not my problem. That's their problem. I know. I understand. But like like, no, but but I think they're reviewing this right because how can you review broadcasts and webstream? You can't review merchandise sales and not have numbers like at least realize there were merchandise sales i mean you didn't see the cracked rackets ls t-shirts on sale in the Uh, in the pro shop but i mean sorry Groskin. no i did not (laughs) this stuff should be in the appendix right and like if you want to increase the transparency and help people like us support college tennis like you need to make this stuff available like and they get so granular on stuff like referee pay i can also t- share with you all that teams will have two extra credentials for the 2024 championships but like that's a good thing that's
1: a great thing, thing we're, but we're that's like a that.
0: see a very detailed <laughs> piece of the puzzle I, I, in this report, is you don't know the attendance. You don't know ticket sales. You don't know these things that are important to gauge the success of the championship. So huge, huge miss in this report. It's not new. This is the case every year. It's just really disappointing. Obviously, you mentioned it. There was a lot of feedback about the USTA. All they say in here is that they reviewed it, Right. There was a a discussion. There was a discussion, (laughs) literally. What was said, you ask? That's not your business. No, discussed (laughs) a few areas of improvement. Should the USTA host again in the future? There was one line in here that stood out to me, though, when they were discussing the USTA, and that was the USTA staff also provided an update on the restructured college tennis department and focus on education. This could mean so many things. They could be disbanding their college tennis department. They could be tripling the size of it. <laughs> right. So these sort of things, again, this is where the the meat and the granularity is not found, uh, unfortunately, because I think that it's in June. It's right after the championships. You would expect a little bit more detail. Two other things I'll add in here is they did raise the point around super regional. No action. They're just continuing to collect feedback here. I do hope we start to see a more tangible plan. Like we can't keep being in this limbo of like, are we going to do super regional? Are we not? Particularly with the team championship moving to only eight teams, only a quarterfinal. That feels like it'll be pretty barren to me. So yes, I hope we uh, get more details there. All right. Any other feedback, Ethan, on the nothing burger of the 2023 championship well, review i thought
1: it was really funny and and maybe maybe you'll have a better sense of this than i will but in the selection criteria part where they deleted the old language about common opponents and replaced it with nearly synonymous language about common opponents in in
0: seeding teams did you see this yes i want where it's like the yeah. strike through
1: they, yeah. they struck through a sentence which basically says in the event that two teams are ranked very similarly they'll look to common opponents and if there's a if one team demonstrates they were clearly better against common opponents that they'll flip the two. They struck that language and replaced it with, this is a comparison of the results between two teams against common common opponents. The team with the better winning percentage against common opponents will win the category with a maximum of one point awarded. It's the same thing. I don't know why they decided that that needed an edit. I, I guess maybe this idea of like, it, it awards you one point. If you used the college tennis ranks team comparison thing you understood there was a variety of points that could be awarded head-to-head record being the most important one of them um and so i guess maybe clarifying that it's only worth a maximum of one point was the point of that whole adjustment but otherwise it says the exact same thing i think it would be good to get more clarity on selection criteria in general um we we have an idea of how the ranking system works. We have an idea that sometimes the NCAA deviates from that, that ranking system in that they choose to prioritize results against common opponents, head-to-head record, things like that, which is good. But we're mostly operating on sort of like like rumors of some objective reality that says this is how they prioritize them. And if you want to see what those rumors look like, you can use the the matchup comparison on college tennis ranks. But there's nothing that's like written down that says like, this is how this works. If they're head-to-head records, you get a maximum of X point per win. If you have common opponents, you get a like, this is the first mention of a point system that I've seen other than we've spoken about it off record of being like, this is how it works. Chris has mentioned this is how he's heard that it works. And he's sort of put that into practice with the with the tool that he's updated to to college tennis ranks. But it's nowhere written in the rules that like this is how this works. So it's like maybe just write it down. Like if if we if we went through the struggle to to strike through five lines of writing and then basically regurgitate the exact same thing with an added caveat at the very end, like write the whole thing down just tell us, be more transparent. I think that's good. Yeah. But yeah, otherwise, on the review side, not much.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like the word transparent, right? A lot of this, uh, it would be great to have more transparency. All right, let's shift gears here to some smaller topics, but actually things I think are pretty impactful when it comes to things the that team we like. event. Yes. So the first is that they are expanding postseason exemption. So this year, the Universal Tennis Organization hosted a uh, NIT event. So a national invitation tournament for teams that did not qualify for the NCAA tournament. This new legislation essentially says that previously, if you wanted to play in a team NIT event, your players couldn't participate in the NCAA tournament individual event. You can only play in one postseason event. And so what this says is you can play both. So if you want to play in a team NIT and then you have your top player go and play NCAA individuals, great. The thing that was interesting to me about this was the ITA originated this proposal. And I had heard that the ITA had long been planning for some sort of NIT event Prior to the Universal Tennis launching theirs, I think they jumped them. So because they proposed this, it would not surprise me if we see the ITA host some sort of NIT. Uh, That was, I think, the most interesting thing. Obviously, the postseason legislation of allowing for both makes a ton of sense. It was interesting that the ITA proposed it.
1: The other thing I'd say about allowing both is it's going to require this is where the ITA might have the advantage if they set up their own postseason event. One of the serious issues with the NIT format as it was this year with UTR was, if I remember correctly, it ended like right when the team event ended, which is right before singles. Yeah. Of course, this year, this will matter. It's a one-year window where this will matter. But NCAA singles took place the day after the men's event final right? If the NIT is not nearby, that basically means that if you do very well this year in the NIT event and you're playing singles, you will finish the NIT team event, immediately get on a plane, immediately fly someplace else and immediately play again. So there's going to need to be edits at least this year, because obviously the singles event is going to move to the fall thereafter. But this year, the, the NIT is going to need to Create a window or a buffer that way, if it has players who win the NIT team event and are playing singles, they can actually do both because right now I really I don't think you could I think right now it'd be too hard to, to actually
0: play both events. Yeah. And previously you wouldn't be allowed to, but this year you can, you can envision a world where, you know, the first two rounds as those are spread across the country, maybe there's an NIT event at the university of Oklahoma and then players who are going on to NCAA individuals who are going to Oklahoma state, right. You know, that could easy transit. Exactly. So that was interesting to see. Or you move
1: the NIT event earlier this year, the NIT event didn't feature anybody who made super regionals. So you can move it up a week.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I was saying on the first and second round, you could have the NIT or you could have the super regionals weekend. You just don't have it. The, the actual days of of the NCAA team. Exactly. Um, All right. And so then the last topic here, and this has been something that's been raised a few years is just this idea of integrity versus geography when you, when they are creating the NCAA draw. So today the NCAA prioritizes geography for those first two rounds when they send the three teams to the top 16 hosts. And so the NCAA more broadly has been testing a kind of a bracketing pilot. Uh, This has been tested in women's soccer and volleyball that prioritizes integrity over geography for the top 50% of the bracket. So the way that this would work is that If you were a top one through four national seed, your number two seed who was sent to you in the first two rounds would be a team ranked 29 through 32. And this is really important because historically their ranking hasn't mattered. Their geography has mattered. So this past year, you have number two overall seed TCU getting sent a two seed in number 19, Texas A&M that wouldn't be possible in this bracketing pilot. So I think this is a a really great thing. However, this is not official for 2024. The committee has asked for a waiver to be a participant in this pilot. uh, But I hope to see this happen for 2024. I think we've seen a lot of disparity in the early rounds. For example, a school like Virginia, where there are not a lot of other top top 25 top 30 teams within their 400 mile radius they end up with pretty weak first and second hey man we got sent
1: stanford in 2021 who was ranked like 20 something and we were number five and we got sent south carolina in 2018 no 2019 who was 17 in the country and we were number six so we've gotten in super regionals we it's all straight ranking, but then we've we've had I mean we've had interesting pods. the the, the year that Stanford was a two seat or was the was the second round match for UVA, I think it was in part that was the COVID year, and I think hmm. Stanford was probably pretty under because they yeah. basically hadn't played. Uh, so that could obviously still happen, though COVID is a bit of a caveat to that. But
0: yeah, um, I mean, this past year, the the women's regional for UVA was pretty weak. I think the number two yeah. seed was like Princeton, who wasn't even in the top 50. These disparities happen, and this would help to minimize those. So Ethan, any thoughts on the bracketing pilot? No, I think it's good. I mean, we've, we've spoken about bracket integrity a lot. Um
1: and, and frankly, if I'm being perfectly honest, uh, the, the thing that makes this interesting to me is that I think we'll get, we will get more regional hosts losing, but it won't be the regional hosts that will shock us. Like we will see more upsets. I think seeds 14, 15 and 16 or 13, 14, 15 and 16, where they're likely to play seed 17, 18, 19 and 20. We're still not going to see a top eight seed lose probably, in, yeah. you know, at home to the number 20 something. That's still still far-fetched to me. But historically, we've seen like 14 or 15 of the top 16 seeds have advanced to the round of 16. Could we get to see, you know, more in the like 13, 12 to 13 zip code? Sure. I think this definitely improves the possibility of that, which means it improves the possibility that we actually see, you know, the teams ranked 17, you know, 17 through 24, who typically you know, sometimes they get decent draws. Sometimes they get sent to their death, you know, playing the two seed. It's more likely that we see a couple of them sneak through, but uh, I don't know how much it's going to change from an actual result standpoint. I think it will, it will yield somewhat more upsets, but a lot more close matches. We could see a lot more four twos and four threes in the second round of NCAs. Whereas this year, I think we saw like I think we saw like nine four zeros or ten four zeros. Like I think yeah. we could see a lot more points being dropped, um, though it's still not going to be by the top, let's say seven teams in my view.
0: Yeah, that's a good point on the thirteen through sixteen zip code. Uh, you know, playing seventeen through twenty four type teams, it's going to be, uh, much more competitive there. So that. Pretty much recaps the NCAA Division I annual report. I will say one thing I thought was missing here was any mention of the combination of D2 and D3 as part of this event. That was the first time this had ever happened. That really didn't get mentioned at all. Last is we'll end here. So bids are coming out this year for the 2027 through 2030 cycle, Ethan. Anyone you want to see bid for either those team or fall championships? Well, I think it'd be cool to get
1: places we either haven't been in a really long time or or haven't been period. Um, You know, UT just built their, they have a brand new facility, right? At UT, I think they have 12 courts as well. So UT would be an interesting one. It's pretty dry there. I don't think it rains much. So outdoor tennis is fairly likely. New facility, premier program. I think that would be a good one though. Obviously, UT and UVA are very competitive. So from a competitive standpoint, I hope they don't get to host. I hope UVA gets to host. Um, but no, I, I think it would be interesting to put it to put it a little bit in rotation regionally as well. You know, I think it would be good to have an event in the Midwest like a Champagne, which we've seen a lot, though John hates it, like uh, like a you know, Waco or UT, send it out west. Do it either, you know, Stanford has hosted it in the past, though, you know, who knows if they even wanna have it there. Um you know, Ohio has always been a good host for um, the Pac-12 tournament. You know, you, you just you don't know. I'd like to see it be put on the road a little bit rather than it feels like right now we've kind of been in a Midwest South Midwest Southeast Midwest Southeast sort of cycle. It'd be nice, you know. we we have Waco coming up, we have Stillwater coming up, so that'll put it maybe a little bit more Southwest, I guess. Though I mean, Oklahoma is. Oklahoma is right on that. It's, yeah. it's pretty Midwest. Like it's right on that line. But I think it'd be good to get a West Coast event again. I think it'd be good, you know, to get something firmly in Texas like we have with Waco, get something maybe more mid-Atlantic, you know, Carey hosts the ACC tournament every year has more than enough facility. I mean, they've got like a gajillion courts and more than enough facility to host an NCAA tournament. You know, I think it'd be cool to get it moving around regionally as opposed to sort of stuck in this cycle where we're it feels like we're seeing a lot of the same places year over year.
0: Yeah. I think my big questions are, are they going to send out bids for the fall championships? I assume they have to just to prepare I for would it.
1: I assume so, yeah.
0: And then just rescind the bid if they decide not to move forward with this. Yeah. Um the second is I think what I would love to see from this committee is some like guiding principles around how what they're looking for. Not necessarily what they're looking for, because those criteria are pretty dry, right? It's like, you need to have these not many really. courts. No, not um, really. They're not, actually. Because
1: when you think about it, like, UGA is a great facility to host NCAAs, right? But for years, for years, they're allowed to host NCAs with basically a putrid indoor facility, right? And it was a problem. We sent people to freaking Atlanta 90 minutes away to play, te-
0: but we clearly need to have at least six indoor courts. You may not agree with the criteria they set, but there is a set of criteria that we just don't think are up to par. For example, I think it's just cri- twelve courts with stands. That's yeah. basically the criteria. I mean, I, I mean, let's argue the definition of stands because those back courts at Georgia, I mean, it's it's yeah, minimal, man. right? But, anyways, I, I'm less saying like the criteria in that sense and more like. Hey, okay, so we just had the USDA host in 2019, 2021, and 2023, basically off-campus, right? Are we going to keep this? Do we want to keep the team championship on campus? Like, that would be a principle that they would need to uphold, right? Those sort of things. What is the path, you know, this talk about path to road to Orlando, road to Omaha, like Is that something you're going to be looking to build? Because the moment we start giving out bids to 2030, all that other stuff goes away. So it feels like now you need to actually be designing what you want this thing to look like. There's nothing in the report about that. Maybe they're having those conversations. Uh, But I also think the introduction of the fall championships allows you to give reward more schools. You also could balance your,
1: you know, your, You're on-campus, off-campus. Exactly. That way. You don't have to, if one of the two every year is on-campus, then I don't think there's that much of an issue with having one of the two off-campus every year. Which one it is, is its own question. Yeah. You know, but, and then by the way, you get into how do you define on or off-campus. I've been at the Cary Tennis Facility for three ACC tournaments, and it is not technically at or on Duke, UNC, or NC State's campus. But it sure as hell feels like it when you play them. So it, you know, it depends on how you, how you sort of craft the definitions. But I agree with you. I think it would be good to get some sense of the direction that the NCAA wants to head in just from a branding standpoint about NCAA's singles and, you know, and the team event, because it'll allow the right colleges to bid. And frankly, if you're a college campus or or a university and you delusionally bid for an event knowing you can't handle it within the criteria that they've set out. Don't bid. Stop. Stop. Don't do it. Okay. So it's yeah. like, you know, it'll be interesting. By the way, it'll be interesting to see this year how how New York City does with indoors. You know, so exactly. we'll, we'll get some more exposure to to sort of the directionality that at least the ITA wants to head in as well as, you know, the sorts of facilities that are capable of hosting events like this.
0: Exactly. Yeah, the one other facility I'd call out is North Carolina. They just built their new facility, nah. outdoor facility there. No. Um, although I will say the seating looks a little limited. Uh, Can't put it on at, those courts Come at on, North man. Carolina. But all right, that is your 2023 annual report recap. Look, there's a lot going on, not only in college athletics but with college tennis as well. We are just yeah, we didn't a few even weeks talk away about
1: realignment
0: well i gotta keep you on task ethan and today you were here
1: word realignment the
0: in-house legal counsel so i appreciate you coming on we're just a few weeks away from college tennis kicking off preseason content individual results so i hope you are ready thank you again